very, very much for the time, Mr. Kenny Lee, and choir, <laughs> mercy. That's awesome. I love it. I wish we could have church every night if it was like this. I would go. I love it. I love uh, when God's honored and glorified. Uh, bless the Lord. Well, I'm certainly glad you're here tonight. You friends and guests that came, thank you. Thank you for coming. Fellowship Baptist Church thanks you. The friends that invited you, thank you. And I'm very grateful you're here. Thank you for coming. Now, we've only got two little bitty teeny-weeny nights left. Tuesday, Wednesday night. I uh, don't know how to advertise tomorrow night altogether. I will tell you while I'm reading the text uh, what I'm going to speak about tomorrow night, but it's not all there is to it. The conclusion tomorrow night, the last five or ten minutes of tomorrow night is worth the whole sermon, so uh, you'll be glad you came uh, for those last ten minutes tomorrow night. And Wednesday night, uh, really, uh, I believe it has potential to help every one of us in a huge way in our race. Tonight, if you got your ribbon thingy, Bob, if you would put it in the book of Romance, put your marker, put something in Romance chapter 8. <clears throat> the Lord willing, it's my intent. I will ask you to turn there at the end of the sermon. You'll know it is really just a couple minutes left when we turn to Romans 8. After you put a marker in Romans 8, we'll go to Hebrews chapter 12. That's our text passage uh, for each of these services, Hebrews chapter 12. Now, if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please. We stand to give reverence and to give honor to the eternal, infallible, inerrant, it's the perfect preserved word of the living God. Hallelujah. Hebrews 12, verse number 1, again. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, the Lord willing, on Wednesday night, that's what I'm going to be preaching about, that great cloud of witnesses. And it says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. By intent, tomorrow night, I'll be talking about the sin that's going to be uh, probably about a third, perhaps a little less than that, but somewhere around that of the message tomorrow night, maybe a fourth of the message, but about the sin that does so easily beset us. And then we keep going. It says, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let me pray with you, please. Our great God, thank you again. Thank you so much. You are so good to us. God, I pray that tonight and what we're trying to go over and what I'm trying to get across tonight, that it would be helpful. I pray that you would receive glory from it. It's my intent to speak the truth and examine the truth, and that we would be honest with uh, this race tonight. So I ask you for your help again, and power, and unction, and then I pray all of us would be good hearers and receivers of the truth tonight. And, and God, if someone's here that's not yet born again, please, please touch them convince and convict their heart of their need to be forgiven. I pray they'd stop the excuses and stop all the pointing, the fingers every other place, but they'd be honest with you tonight. They need a forgiver. They need a Savior, and you want to do that. So, Lord, thank you for what we've already enjoyed. Thank you for what you've already done, and thank you for what you're about to do. And it is in the mighty and holy name of your only begotten Son, 
our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we pray, amen. And then you may be seated. <clears throat> We've, uh, I've gone over and I've tried to get us to realize that Hebrews 12, it's a metaphor about Christianity. <clears throat> the metaphor is a race. Christianity is a race that's taking place. And to be in the race, you've got to be a Christian. If you don't get the jersey, you're not in the race. To get the jersey, you have to realize you don't have it, realize you're not a believer, you're, you're not a Christian, you're not forgiven, and believe with all your soul the, the heavenly calling that Christ is God's Son. And if you'll receive Him and partake of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, if you'll believe He did that for you, He'll change your eternity forever and, and can change your life right here. And He wants to, but we have to agree to it. So we've looked at that, and we've looked at the race that it is in, in Agona, the race is, and we're supposed to, it's going to take, it takes um, energy and effort. It says run, and with this idea that it's an Agona, then that's really going to take some energy and effort. Somebody say amen. All right. <clears throat> Tonight I want to began anyway, when he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin. When he says that, I, I, I've been in church my whole life, and all, every time I came to that passage and heard it read out loud, or if I paid any attention in the preaching, I always, I always thought that every weight and sin, that they're the same thing, that every weight is a sin. But I want you to know tonight that it's possible that some things that are not sinful can become weights. They can become a hindrance. See, the weight, that's what it does. It, it weighs us down or it hinders us from making the progress that he wants us to make. These weights. It does say... Lay aside every weight and the sin. That conjunction and doesn't automatically mean that every weight is a sin. But it is, there is a sin also. There is sin that also would hinder our progress. Amen? All right. And so let us lay aside. The first thing, I guess, or I've already said several things, but one of the things I want to get inside your head, it's every. It's not some of them. It's not the ones that you agree with. It's every weight. If there is anything that's causing impediment, if there's anything that's causing you to be hindered and making progress, you need to lay it aside. Amen. Even the things that are not wicked and not sinful. For instance, there is nothing, there is nothing at all wrong with having a family. God kind of invented it. He did create Adam and Eve. If it weren't Adam and Eve, there wouldn't be any of us here. To have a family, it's got to be an Adam and an Eve. All this foolishness and all this barking that we hear out there, and they want us to acknowledge it and accept it as, you know, reality. The truth is, it's not God's plan. That's human's plan. Or you could say that's the wicked one's plan. Regardless, God created the family, and he had Adam and Eve, and he had it planned out where they could bear children, and there is going to be a family. And there's nothing at all wrong with family. I am for it. I, I'm, I love big families. I love people that got, you know, like not three or four kids, but I'm talking about nine or ten. I love you. Mercy. I just wish we all had courage to do it. <laughs> Some other factors come into play, but mercy, it's awesome. Families are a blessing, and we ought to love them and enjoy them and all that, but there are those who are believers. They've got the jersey, they've got the, the number, and they use the family as some kind of blockade or an excuse that they can't really do the church stuff and the God stuff. 
They're, they got, no, 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 I work all week and I've only got the, you know, a couple days to spend with the family. I got to spend it with the family. That's a family come. And I've had people get on to me and bark at me and say, hey, 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 Brother Dave, you just go on and on about the church and being servitude to Jesus and being dedicated and submissive to Jesus. And you go on and on and on about that. But God created the family before he did the church. And I go, you're right. You're awesome. He did. And so my family comes first. Well, that's a boo-boo. God comes before your family. And since you brought it up, God is the one that started the church. His name is Jesus. And I reckon you ought to take it up with God about how much you're going to be surrendered and dedicated to his church. I'm pretty sure he left us some information of how we're supposed to behave toward his church. Oh, my family comes first. I'll just say it out loud. If your family keeps you from serving God because you love your family so much that your family, you're so dedicated, committed to your family, your life is out of whack. God never intended for the family to take place of servitude and surrender to him and his work. Never. I've got, I want to mention it again tomorrow, I've got five brothers and five sisters, and I've had several in my family get on to Nancy and I, and they gave us good instruction when the kids were little to say, you guys are too strict on those girls. They're going to turn their back on everything you taught them. They're going to turn their back because you guys are way too strict, and you expect too much and all that I go, well, I know this, that I feel like this is what God wants us to do, and we're going to do what God wants us to do. Here's what I learned. Our children will follow us if they realize that we're doing it because God wants us to. If they think it's just because we're hard-headed and hard-nosed and we're going to do it my way whether you like it or not, then they might rebel against that. You say, well, kids rebel against you doing it for God? Well, let me ask you, crybaby, have you ever rebelled against God? Uh, duh. But I'm telling you, your kids will respect you and honor you if they know that your commitment and your surrender to God is real. Amen. Is it, Brother Dave, we're supposed to lay aside every weight? So you're telling me I got to take the family and lay them aside, discard them so I can run the race for Jesus? Well, you're getting a picture, but it's not that I discard my family. God's given us lots of instructions of how to take care of our family and what a family's life is supposed to be. But watch this. I am to let my family know, and I'm to let God know, that my family does not get the priority. God does. If God asks me to go to a foreign field, I don't ask my family. I say yes to God. Amen? Is anybody hearing anything I'm talking about? If God has convicted me and put on my soul that I should help in a Sunday school class, I don't have to beg my family and ask them if I can help in a Sunday school class because that means we won't be able to go out on all the weekends that we usually go out because I've got a commitment to the church. I'll just tell them this is what God wants me to do. Is anybody getting this? No, 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 you don't discard your family, but the family does not come first anymore and they know it. There's nothing wrong with the J-O-B. Job is important. Isn't it funny? They're spelled the same, aren't they? I'm talking about a job. God created us to have to work. We have to. It's part, part of the curse, but even before the curse, he was supposed to take care of the garden. There's activity involved. We're supposed to work. Nothing wrong with having a job. In fact, we would like for all of you to have a really good job. Boom. I'm talking a big money job. Boom. And you were faithful to tithe. We would love it. Yep. Nothing wrong with having a job. In fact, you have to have a job. Since you brought it up, the Bible says, if you don't work, you ought not. <laughs> it is amazing how many, people, how many people know that's in the Bible. Nobody in Washington, D.C. does, but everybody down here does. Amen. But anyway, you're supposed to have a job and work because you've got go, go to go to work so you can make money, so you can get some food, so you can have energy, so you can go to work. 
Then you got to go to work so you can make money so you can get some clothes so you won't have to go to work naked. Then you need to go to work to make some money so you can have a place to rest at night so you can go to work and get some more money. Amen? You got to work. But there are many, many people that say, they say they're a Christian. They say they've got the jersey, but they're much more dedicated and much more committed and much more sincere to their work than they are the Lord Jesus. Their work takes priority in their life in every area. It's embarrassing. If you're a believer tonight and you say you don't have time to spend with your family because you work, you've got the wrong job. God never intended for a man to work so much that he can't give the attention to his family that they are supposed to have. Amen. Now, Brother Dave, you think I ought to quit? I think you better get right with God. And say, God, I'm not going to let my family suffer because I got a J-O-B. It's embarrassing that you and I, we get so conflicted and we let the workplace take control of our life and they get to tell us when and what to do. Well, Brother Dave, they're my job, but I want to keep the job. Well, since we're talking about it, do emergencies happen everywhere? Yeah. At a workplace, emergencies happen. I understand that sometimes emergencies happen and you need to work 12 hours and seven days a week. I understand that there is a possibility, but if you work seven days a week and it goes on for a year, you work in a place that has lousy management. They don't know what they're doing. You can tell them that, hey, unless you get the management fixed here, I can't work here anymore because I don't work seven days a week. God says we need a day of rest, and I need a day to worship Him. Amen. Well, you think I ought to just go in there and tell them? Well, if that's how the company behaves all the time, I think you should. Now, I know emergencies happen, and you got to go through it sometimes, but it ought not be a regular thing of life. Amen. And it ought to be that you're the best employee they have that they go, we'll do anything to keep you. If you only work four days a week, we'll keep you because you are the best employee we have. Amen. You don't have to brown nose them and, you know, suck up to them and act like, you know, that you don't have to lie about it. Just be the best worker they got. Amen. Brother Dave, so you're saying lay aside the way we ought to quit our job? No, but your job does not get the priority. Amen. Is anybody hearing anything I'm saying? There's nothing wrong with fishing. There's nothing wrong with hunting. Praise God. There's nothing wrong with golf. I attempt it. It's the most frustrating thing I've ever attempted in my life. Well, that and marriage are about the same. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with recreation. My wife is one of the oh, most fortunate people in, in humanity. Her spiritual gift and her recreation are the same thing. Not very many people get that. But her spiritual gift is shopping. <laughs> Amen. And there's nothing wrong with that spiritual gift. As long as you don't spend money you don't have. The little plastic thing doesn't mean you have the money. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with being a shopper and enjoying doing that. Her and her buddy can go and spend eight hours all day in one, one shopping center. <sighs> I would say, take me to the funny farm. I can't do this. I'm not doing that. I'm laying in the parking lot. I am not doing that. <laughs> she loves it. She enjoys it. And there's nothing wrong with that when time affords that. There's nothing wrong with golf. There's nothing wrong with honey. There's nothing wrong with that if time allows that, but it never takes priority over your service and your commitment to the Lord God. It's an impediment. It's a hindrance. It's a weight in your life. Amen. Nothing wrong with that. I have a list that I could go through and talk about all these things that are not, they're not wicked and sinful of themselves, but if we're not careful, they will become a hindrance, an impediment to us. 
<coughs> I want to, I'm going to turn this lay aside weight with a different perspective. In high school, I uh, played, uh, I played the three major sports up through the ninth grade, and then I just played two, and then I just played one. But anyway, I never ran track. I call baseball, football, and basketball the major sports. I don't know, but I never did run track. I saw the track people in the place and all that, and I was glad we had a track team and so on, but I saw track people walking around in the school, and they had weights on their ankles walking around school. And I thought, man, I bet that's helpful. I bet that's, that's pretty cool they're doing that. And I, you know, I know what they're doing. They're trying to strengthen themselves. And so I told you that I uh, was going to run a marathon. And so in my head, I got the idea that, oh, I'm going to put some weights on. I went to uh, Big Five, and I bought some blue two-and-a-half-pound weights for each ankle. I bought them. They have a little strap on them, a Velcro thing that tighten up around your ankle. I know exactly where we were. I can take you to the hotel we were out in California. And I had a path that I'd run there many times before. And I told Nancy, it was on a Monday morning, I said, I'm going to go out running. Got my running clothes on. I said, got these weights. I showed them to her. I said, when I come back, (laughs) I was only going to run two miles. Then I said, I, when I come back, I take those weights off, my legs will be like feathers. <laughs> I will float around here like Peter Pan. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. <laughs> I took off running. I left the parking lot, and I had not run a full block. And every step I took on each foot the ankle, the, the weight went like this, on both ankles. I had not run a block, and I go, I'm going to have blisters all over my ankles. If not blisters, blood. I'm going to, this is going to be horrible. I'm not doing this. I stopped on the sidewalk, took off the weights, laid them on the sidewalk, and took off running, and said, if somebody else wants them, they can have them. I came back there. They were still there, so nobody wanted them. I picked them up. Today, I know exactly where they are. If you look in my closet in the right-hand corner, and there underneath a couple other things, but in the right-hand corner, there's two, two-and-a-half-pound blue weights on top of each other just laying there, and I don't know what to do with them. I probably should sell them on Craigslist. (laughs) Anyway, that was silly to have those weights on me. In our heads, sometimes we're thinking about that, you know, we're trying to improve ourselves, but I never, it didn't dawn on me until after I got back to the hotel room and all that stuff that I never did see those track people running those weights. (laughs) I only saw them walk in them. So anyway, that was a dumb move. So we were in California, and I've always, I've always wanted to run on the beach. Because everybody looks good on the beach. (laughs) You just look good if you're running on the beach. I wanted to do that. And I told Nancy, I said, there's a beach down here, and I'm going to go run on it. I'm going to go run a couple miles on the beach because I've always wanted to do that. Now, if you've never been to the beach, well, I'm sorry, but if you have, some of us know this. You drive the car into a parking lot, and you have to stop. The beach, the Wawa is way down there. You have to walk through the sand. The sand is not smooth. It's lumpy and loose and wiggly and yucko. It fills up your shoes with sand. I got down close to the water where the, wa- the, the sand is compacted a little bit. I had to sit down and empty the sand out of my shoes so I could run on the beach. I got the sand out, most I could, and all that, and so I took off running, 
and I'm doing really good. I think, I'm looking good. And all of a sudden, the Wawa started coming. Hey, hey, hey. It's going to get my socks wet. I don't want to run with wet socks. This ain't, oh. I don't think I looked good. I'm pretty sure other people that saw me said, he's looking good. But I didn't feel like that. I got done with that two miles, and I never ran on the beach again. I never want to. I was telling this to another congregation. There was a track coach in the congregation. And he says, I take my team down to the beach, and we run on the sand. I said, I'm sorry, I misunderstood you. I said, now, when you run down there, you guys run down there where the, the water is, where the sand is compressed. He goes, no, 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 we run the sand. You run in that, I said, they'll break an ankle, man. Twist a knee, why? He goes, no, it doesn't. I said, they run in that sand. And in my head, the only reason anybody would any, ever run in the sand, why would a coach do that to his team? And I figured it out. He hates them. <laughs> he wants them to quit so he doesn't have a track team anymore. That's the only reason he could do that. He said, no, Dave. He said, when they run in the sand, he said, they have to concentrate more. Uh, duh, yeah, you'll break a leg. He said, they have to lift their feet higher if you run in the sand. He said, it will build every muscle from their torso down. Ankles, knees, thighs, hips, their core. He said, it will build every muscle, and it will help their win. So... If you and I did think about that, if the coach made them run in the sand, after they got back home to the track, two days later, if he put them on the track, do you think they might be a little stronger? Maybe even a little faster. Is everybody hearing me? The coach had a reason for the sand. In the metaphor that's in Hebrews chapter 12, I'm not the one that invented it. It's in the Bible that there's the stadium, there's a race taking place, and if there is an athletic event, there's got to be somebody who's the coach. And I don't mean to be disrespectful at all, but evidently in this metaphor, Jesus, the Lord, he's our coach. He set the race before us. And I believe with all my heart that sometimes the coach has us run in the sand. I will say it out loud, it's not because he hates us. It's not, it's not because he's trying to get us to quit. He knows what's going on in our life. And we talk about running in the sand. First of all, uh, well, let me say this. Some years ago, I heard an old preacher preaching about when the disciples were out in the boat and the storm came. He was an older type preacher, and he said, I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, Christians, believers, he said, I want you to know right now, if you're not in a storm right now, that means you just came out of one, or you're just about to go into one. Storms are a part of Christianity. Since I'm an old preacher now, I'm telling you storms, I'll say it like this, sand is a part of Christianity. And I'll say it more than once tonight, I hate the sand. I don't like it. In August of 2016, so that's a year and a half ago, our daughter called us crying on the phone. She was crying where he couldn't understand what she's saying and so on. I have two daughters 
the oldest one, Angie's not married. I still want her to be married. I'm still looking for somebody. So anybody between the age of 28 and 68, <laughs> I'm still looking, okay? But hallelujah, someone answered the ad in the newspaper and our youngest daughter got married. <laughs> Becky and Brian have uh, been married uh, this coming June, will be uh, eight years. So a year and a half ago, they were just married six years. Their daughter is five years old and their boy is four. In July, that's when their birthday is, so in May or in June, they were three and four years old. So that August, right after they turned four and five, our daughter called us and crying on the phone. And we could not, she couldn't get it out hardly. And she said that we just found out today that Ryder, the little boy, has been molested all summer long. I've never heard words like that before in my family. You're talking about breaking a, a poppy's heart, making you nauseous. Just immediately, I just couldn't believe she's saying those words. And so I began to ask questions. What do you, what, what, how do you, how did you find this out? What do you mean? And she began to try to describe it and explain it. And see, our daughter and son, they, they work at the college. And in the summer, they work there too. And the kids go with them and play in their office. And they play on little computer games or they're drawing. Or sometimes they go outside and they play out there on the campus somewhere. And our grandson, who's four years old, uh, got a picture of him with a hard hat. And he's following the maintenance men, and they let him, two of these guys would let him go with them. They gave him a hammer and a screwdriver. This little boy just followed him around while they're working. There are a few other children there, not many, just a few. One of them's a teenage boy. And of course, kids want to play and our grandson wants to play and of course a, if a big boy wants to play that's even better and they played around on the campus different areas and it was found out that this teenager had done this to our grandson so now I'm, I'm getting more and more aware and so on I said okay what's the leadership doing see that, that teenage boys his parents work there too and so what, what are they doing? What's the leadership doing? Have they fired him? Have they kicked him off the campus? What's going on? Well, not yet. Well, come on, what are they doing? Well, does the president already know? Does the vice president, does the dean know? Does somebody know? What are they doing about this? And I'm really getting worked up now, and I'm saying, well, do I need to call somebody? Do I need to fly home and start talking to this business? I've got to take care of this. I'm not letting this slide. Somebody's got to answer for this. I'm getting more and more heated as we go. And she told us that there's a detective in the church for the city and they want to talk to him and let him give them the guidance to move through this and so it won't maybe be such a public ordeal. I don't care if it's public or not. However, I do know that if the Oklahoma City news teams and all those people, if they found out that this happened at a Christian college, they would love to put it on the front page and blast Christians about their impropriety and you know what I'm saying? They would love that. And so I kind of understood it, but at the same time they got to do something. They can't mess around about this. And then I realized, oh yeah, if it becomes public, now DHS could get involved in it. And DHS could come to our children's house and say, how come y'all aren't better parents? Why did you let your son roam around like this? Why weren't you watching him? Why didn't you pay attention to what he was doing? And DHS would, could, and I know they've done it, they could take opportunity and say, since we, we don't know what kind of parent you are, we're going to take your children out of your home until we figure this out. And then I'd want to get a, some kind of device. 
I'm telling you, I'm getting more and more full of anger and questions, trying to fix this, and how are we going to do this? Rung up the phone, Nancy and I cried and cried and wept for our grandson. And then his mama and his daddy and praying that God, please give them wisdom. They don't have a clue what to do. We don't know what to do. Please protect them. A few weeks later, school has started. A few weeks later, the boy and the girl, five and a four-year-old, they're in the backyard playing, and our daughter overheard the little girl ask her brother, how come you don't play with this boy's name anymore? And the little boy just looked at her and says, because he's nasty. She said, okay, and it went on playing. You know, I don't want my grandson scarred by that. You hear all these horrible stories about kids and what happened to them when they were little. Weeks have passed. So I said, what are they doing? What are they doing? Well, the detective's investigating. He's asking people and it wasn't just our grandson. There was a couple other boys that weren't at the campus that were at, another, at, the, at another place that this boy had access to and they had like a little club. They're doing the detective work. Thanksgiving time. They said, okay, the trial's going to be in December. <clears throat> December came and it's time for the trial and one of the lawyers was sick. Couldn't come so they bumped it up to February. What has happened so far? Well the only thing that we know that happened is that the boy, the teenager, could not be out of the sight of one of his parents. He had to be in their presence at all times while they're at the campus or at the church. Couldn't be, he had to be in their presence. So that was the restriction so far, and we're been out of shape, and we don't know when they're going to do it. We're trying to say, God, give wisdom. Please protect our grandson. And he did some counseling with uh, some counselors, and they felt like that, anyway, in their heart, they felt like that he didn't seem to carry a, a fearful scar with him and so on. It was January. I was preaching in California again. It was Wednesday. And Becky called. She was crying. Just crying on the phone. And she said, Daddy, I can't take it anymore. I see them every day. I'm reminded of it every day, and I just can't take it anymore. I don't want to see them. I said, well, Becky, are you going to quit? I don't know what to do. <clears throat> and I don't know why. It never came up before. It might have been because Becky's, how her attitude was or how she at least behaved in front of us. But uh, at this very moment, God pressed on my heart to talk to her about bitterness. I had preached a series of sermons on bitterness, and uh, so I began to talk to Becky that, Becky, you cannot stay bitter, honey. If you stay bitter toward this family, it will destroy you on your inside. You'll lose your joy and your peace. I said, if you stay bitter, it will destroy your relationship with you and your husband. You cannot stay bitter. Becky, if you stay bitter, it will destroy your relationship between you and your son. Bitterness is a destroyer. It will ruin you, honey. You cannot stay bitter. Talk to her about forgiveness. I say that I talk to her about bitterness and forgiveness. She says that I preach to her my series on bitterness and forgiveness. That was Wednesday afternoon. 
Nancy and I cried some more. Prayed for Becky. That God would help her not hold bitterness. That night, Wednesday night, a lady got up to sing. She had a harp. She sat in a chair and leaned the harp toward her. They had the mic set up. She started strumming the harp, and she sang a song I'd never heard. I found out afterwards that the man who wrote this song is named Stephen Nichols. You spell it with a C-H-O. Stephen Nichols pastors in Sacramento, California area. He has a large family. He has some family. Some of them have special needs, and they have some trials, a lot of trials in their home. And he writes songs, and as a family, they sing. She began to sing this song that God wanted it that way. After she got done, I got up and I said, you have no idea how important, how special that song is to me today. Thank you for singing it. Could you get that to me? And after church, they emailed it to me and whatever, with the, how are you, I don't know the words, but I had it where I could listen to it. I forwarded it to my daughter Wednesday night, which was late. She didn't get it. She got it Thursday morning. We didn't communicate Thursday morning. She told us later. She probably listened to it 20 times. And in this church, you guys know how valuable music is. How it can help you and it can remind you and teach you. I want to read you two of the scores uh, or two of the um, verses of this song, God Wanted It That Way. If God wanted it that way, Daniel would have never known the lion's den. Joseph would have the throne without the prison. David would have never known Saul's jealousy, and Job would have never lost his family. Stephen would have never been stoned, and the beatings of Paul would have never been known. But God wanted it that way. Every trial, every test was only for the best. It was always in his plan, though we may not understand. As the potter molds the clay, God just wanted it that way. If God had wanted it that way, no one would have ever known the trail of blood. Tyndale would have the word of God completed. Preachers would have never heard their children cry as they walked alone to that stake to die. Nero would have never had the throne. The Colosseums of Rome would have never been known. It's another verse that my daughter said she listened to that song 20 times that morning. I will tell you that this song, when it says God wanted it that way, that I've had, uh, I've read this before, my daughter has given me permission, she in fact says I want you to tell people. I've had those come to me and say, Brother Dave, I think all this sin stuff comes from the devil. It comes because of sin, not because of God. I said, well, you're right that sin opened the door for all sadness and tragedy. But God is still God. And God knows when we're in the sand. He didn't plan, God wasn't his plan for this boy to do this to our grandson. God could have had our grandson die in a crib death or a tragedy at home before he ever met this teenager. He could have had the teenager die in a, some kind of happening. God is not blind. God knows what's going on. He does not cause the sin, but he's well aware of it. And sometimes the coach has us running in the sand. I will tell you tonight, if you're in the sand right now, I'm sorry. I hate it for you. I don't want you to be there. But the coach knows you're there. My, my intent tonight is not to compare with you about our sand experience. 
That's not my intent. My intent is for you and I to be honest that it's there, that it happens. My daughter wrote a letter, emailed this family, and she says these words. First of all, I want to tell you I am sorry. I have allowed Satan to plant seeds of bitterness in my heart. God started working on my heart on Wednesday afternoon. I called my dad who preached to me his series on forgiveness and bitterness. Halfway through it, I thought, why did I call you? (laughs) However, he was right, and I needed it. I could not understand why God allowed it for, for it to happen. I could not understand why God is making it harder for me by having to see you and be reminded of it every day. I realized something. I'm human. I'm not going to understand it all. I just need to trust God and carry on. The Lord will take care of my feelings and restore healing. His grace and peace is sufficient. And then she has all caps, if we allow it to be. Then something amazing happened today. I had a personal revival. God used this song to help me see everything from a different view. We serve an almighty God. He could have chosen not to let this happen. But somehow in his plan, long before you had your son or we had our son, God knew. Nothing is a mystery to the Creator. We may never know why, but we do know it's because He wanted it that way. When I understood that, it changed everything. She said, you all are walking in harder shoes than we are. I pray I never know what it's like. I've been praying for you all and will continue to do so. Please know that we have forgiven your son. I know that God will use this for his good. I pray this song will be a blessing to you. When you and I are in the sand, and we, we hate it, we can't get bitter and mad and angry. We've got to realize that the coach knows about the sand. The truth is, many of us have heard that, that prose that was written about the footsteps in the sand, and we had two sets, but when things got hard, there was only one set. And he says, well, child, that's when I was carrying you. God knows we're in the sand. And we have to get to the place where we can, we can and it's not wrong, it is not wrong to say, God, I don't like this, I hate it. He already knows you hate it. But you say, hey, you say, Brother Dave, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to, how do I lay that aside? I'm in the midst of the sand, how do I lay it aside? And here's what you do, you cannot get out of the sand. Look up here, let me show you what you do. You say, God, I am not going to let this sand cause me to stop the race. You lay that aside. You lay that thought aside that you will not let this sand make you stop in the race. Can somebody say amen? That very same week, I was in a church and there was a poster on the wall. And the poster said these words. Every experience God gives us Every person he puts in our lives is the perfect preparation for only a future he can see. For a future only he can see. Did you hear that? Every experience God gives us, every person he puts in our lives is the perfect preparation for a future only he can see. You know who said those words? a Dutch watchmaker's daughter. Her name is Corrie Ten Boom. Miss Corrie Ten Boom helped hundreds escape the Holocaust. She helped Jewish people escape from Germany's terror and save their lives. 
And Corey Tim Boom had to go to a prison camp because she was found out. And she said every person and every experience is God's perfect preparation for a future only he can see. If you'll turn to Romans 8, I want to show you something. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Now let me ask you this question. Look up here. Do we really believe that? See, we're in the race, and we know there's some tragedy, we know there's discomfort, we know there's sorrow, but do we really believe when we're in the sand? See, at the moment when you're in the sand, you're going, I don't know how this is going to work out, but what you have to do is believe Romans 8, 28. All things do work together for good. Somebody say amen. How do we do that? The only, one, only way we can is by faith. So if I'm in the sand and I can say, God, I'm going to lay this sand, this experience, I'm not going to let this sand, I'm not going to let this keep me from making progress in the race. I'm not hanging it up. I'm staying in the race. I think it would be an extremely healthy thing for you and I to make the commitment. Now some of you, I said you just got out of the sand. And you're thankful, and what you need to do is say, God, I'm not going to let that experience hinder my progress in the race. Some of you are in the sand right now, and you need to make that, that decision, that commitment. I'm not going to let this cause me to waver in my race. I'm going to keep making progress. Some of you know people in the sand, and perhaps you could be a help to them and be a blessing to them and try to help them understand. God's, God's at work. He's not, he's not asleep. He's not on vacation. He's not going away. He's still the coach. He knows exactly where we are. If you're not saved, friend, the first thing you got to do is get saved. You say, well, if I get saved, I don't want to run in the sand. Time out. You're going to run in the sand whether you get saved or not. That's part of humanity. But if you don't have the Savior with you, you might not have anybody to carry you through the sand. You need to get saved. He loves you. He wants, to, he wants to forgive you. Would you trust him tonight? Would you just admit it, get to the place where you stop faking it, stop pretending to say, God, I don't know that I'm forgiven. I want to be, I want to know. Or maybe tonight you just need to find your place, find a place to just pray and say, God, I'm casting all my care on you. I can't, can't handle this sand. I need some help. I know you're involved. I trust you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please. 